0: Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 14. we will be preaching this morning in verses 1 through 14. That's John 14 verses 1 through 14 as we continue our study through this wonderful gospel. John 14, 1 through 14. And as you turn there, let's go to the Lord and ask His blessing on the reading and preaching of His Word. Lord, You have told us that the grass withers and that the flower fades, but that the Word of our Lord will stand forever. We now come to Your true, holy, infallible, clear, and abiding Word. We ask You now to speak to us by Your Spirit and through Your Word that we might draw closer to Jesus. In His name we pray, Amen. Hear the word of the Lord from John 14, 1 through 14 Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else, believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask of my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name I will do it. May God bless the reading of his holy infallible word and let his church say amen. It is impossible for you not to not think about something. I'm going to do a little test here and prove it to you, prove that it is impossible for you not To not think about something. Are you ready? Don't think about a white snow-capped mountain. Don't think about a sandy beach and blue waters. Don't think about a candy apple red 67 Corvette. You failed the test, didn't you? Each one of those times, you thought about exactly what I mentioned to you. And I thought about that as I studied this passage of Scripture. In verse 1, Jesus tells His disciples, He instructs His disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Now why would Jesus tell them this? Because their hearts were troubled. That's why He told them this. The hour for the cross has arrived. Jesus is headed there. He will be betrayed by Judas. He will be denied by Peter. He will suffer the shame and agony of the cross. And telling His disciples, let not your hearts be troubled, is a little like telling you, don't think about a 67 candy apple red Corvette. They can't do it. Let not your hearts be troubled? Are you kidding me, Jesus? Jesus? You can tell us all you want not to let our hearts be troubled, but that won't change the way our hearts feel. Or will it? John chapter 14, Jesus isn't simply telling the disciples, don't be troubled, don't be sad, don't lack faith, don't think negative thoughts, don't think bad things about the cross. That is not what Jesus is telling them by telling them, do not be troubled. Instead, He gives them reason why they ought not be troubled. The command, let not your heart be troubled, comes with promises. So that when their hearts are troubled by all the events that are going to occur, they'll have a way to encourage their hearts. They would need these promises They would need to preach these promises to their own hearts. They would need to recall these promises. They would need to fight the anxiety that they would feel in their heart with the promises that Jesus gives them here in chapter 14. And Jesus tells them right here in verse 1, you notice that right there in verse 1, believe in God, believe also in Me. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, you can take My promises to the bank is what Jesus is saying. If you believe in God, you can believe in Me. And since you believe in Me, you can believe in the promises. You and I, the good news from this passage, is can do the sa- you and I can do the same. These promises aren't just for the disciples, but they are for all Christians, and we need them too when our hearts are troubled. When our hearts were filled with anxiety and worry and fear. And what this passage teaches us to do is to take these promises and to preach the promises of Jesus to our troubled heart. That's what we have to do. We have to fight fear and anxiety and worry and the turmoil of our hearts with the promises of Jesus. We have to remind ourselves of them. We have to preach them to ourselves. And when we do... It brings comfort to our soul. So over the next couple of weeks, uh, this morning, we'll look at uh, three of these promises. And then next week, we'll look at some more and we'll get through all of them in chapter 14. But all of chapter 14 is filled with these precious promises from Jesus for troubled hearts. Are you ready? Let's look at them together. What's the first promise in this chapter for troubled hearts? Number one, I want you to see here in verse 2, when you're troubled about weak perseverance, preach to your heart the promise of heaven. When your heart is troubled about perseverance, when your heart is troubled about enduring through this life, will you be able to make it through this Christian life? Will you make it all the way to glory? When your heart is troubled about that, you need to preach to your heart the promise of heaven. Look with me at verse 2, and I love that Jesus begins here in this passage. You know the verse, don't you? Jesus tells them, in my Father's house are many rooms. What's Jesus talking about? Jesus is talking about heaven. The old Latin Vulgate translated this word, uh, the English equivalent is mansions. So some of you probably, if you grew up on the old King James Version, you probably grew up learning this verse as, in my Father's house are many what? Many mansions. And you probably sang the old revivalistic songs, there's a mansion made, uh, made up for me in glory. I sang them too, from time to time. It's probably not the best translation of this word, Because the idea of mansions gives us this uh, idea that in heaven, that heaven is essentially a big neighborhood where we go and reside and we all have our own individual mansion in heaven. So if that's what you've been thinking heaven is like, I hate to tell you this morning, that is not what this passage is teaching. This passage is not teaching that in heaven you get your own mansion. Now before you bring me up on charges before the presbytery for preaching heresy, hear me out. What Jesus is saying here is that in his father's house, notice the singular, there are many rooms. The word is dwelling places. The idea is that in heaven we dwell together as Christians in a singular place with the Father. And Jesus assures them in verse 2 that if this were not the truth, He wouldn't tell them that He's going to prepare a place for them. It's a rhetorical question. Why would I tell you that I'm going to prepare a place for you if there wasn't a place for you? If heaven was not true, why would I tell you that I'm going to do that? In fact, what Jesus is saying here is it is advantageous for you that I am leaving because my leaving prepares the place for you. For you, Now, I used to think that what Jesus is doing is that Jesus is up in heaven with his construction belt and all his power tools and that he's up there uh, making my place in heaven and that when my mansion gets done, my ticket is punched and off to heaven I go. Again, don't bring me up on charges of presbytery. That is not what this passage is teaching. What Jesus is saying here is that His going to the cross, the price that He pays for our sins on the cross, the justification that we receive, the the receiving the punishment for our sins, that is what prepares for us a place in heaven. And Jesus gives in the promise in verse 3 that if He goes To prepare this place, what's He going to do? He's going to come again. There'll be another advent. And and Jesus will come again so that where He dwells, they can dwell too. I thought that was really interesting. Did you notice that? Jesus doesn't say in verse 3, I will come again and take you there to heaven. He does not say that. He doesn't say, I'll come again and take you to heaven. What's Jesus say? I will come again and take you where? To Myself. That's what Jesus is saying. To Myself, that where I am, you may be also. That's the promise. The promise is heaven. It's not the promise of your own mansion. It is the promise of eternal fellowship with God the Father and God the Son. It is the promise that for eternity, you and I, if we are in Christ we will dwell with Him. And so Jesus tells the disciples, you know the way to where I am going. And Jesus is prodding questions here from the disciples. And so Thomas asks for an address. Look with me here at verse 5. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? What's Thomas asking? He wants an address. He wants to pull out his iPhone and type in the address so that after all this is over, he can get direct coordinates and meet up with Jesus after the cross. He wants a specific location. He wants to know the way. And Jesus is telling him, you know the way. Why do you know the way? Because Jesus is the way. That's the promise. If you're in Christ, the promise of heaven is is for you. Ever thought about how the promise of heaven comforts our hearts when they are afflicted? The men of the church are reading Thomas Watson's book, uh, a godly man's picture drawn with a scripture pencil. And in this book Watson describes that a godly man is a patient man. A godly man bears up under trials and afflictions. And he talks about the way that God uses those trials and afflictions in our lives. Listen to what he says. Afflictions quicken our pace on the way to heaven. Afflictions quicken our pace on the way to heaven. As we go through trials and hardships and afflictions, the promise of heaven becomes more and more sweet to us. And then he gives us an analogy. He says that it is with us as with children on an errand. If they meet with apples and flowers by the way, they linger and are in no great hurry to get home. So you picture this image in your mind of children being sent on an errand from their parents and on the way to run this errand where they see but flowers and apples on the way. And so what do they do? They linger on the way. But... Watson says, if anything frightens them, then they run with all the speed they can to their father's house. So those children, when they become frightened on the errand, what do they do? They hurry up and get home. Kind of like being out riding your bicycle in the neighborhood and a thunderstorm pops up suddenly. What do you do? You ride full speed to get home as fast as you can. Watson continues, so in prosperity... We gather the apples and flowers and don't give much thought to heaven. But, if troubles begin to arise and the times grow frightful, then we make more haste to heaven. You know this to be true, don't you? Some of the hardships and trials and afflictions that you've been through, it has been the promise of heaven that you have held near and dear to your heart that has enabled you to persevere enabled you to continue. Watson says that this world is but a great inn where we stay a night or two and be gone. What madness it is to set our heart upon our inn as to forget our home. When your heart is troubled, you and I need to Preach the promise of heaven to our heart. And of course, our culture lies to us about the way to heaven, doesn't it? Did you notice? It's pretty much everyone believes in a heaven. No matter what their creed, no matter what their religion, uh, even if they identify as you know, no religion, most people believe in a heaven. And most people believe what? That they're going there. And so our culture feeds into this lie about the way to heaven. That you can make your own way to heaven. You can find your own path to God. Or that all religions are going up different sides of the same mountain. Have you heard that one before? Some religions teach that heaven is not a place, but heaven is a state of mind and where you reach eternal Bliss and become one with the universe in a state of nirvana. Some religions teach that in heaven you get your own planet and that you get to populate your own planet for all eternity as a demigod. If you have that view, please come talk to us after church. Jesus in this passage is not politically correct, is He? Jesus says here, I wonder if you notice in verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. There aren't multiple ways to heaven. There is one way to heaven. And that path leads through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the truth. He embodies truth in Himself. He is the way to eternal life. So He is life. And if we're going to spend eternity in heaven, we must come through Him and Him alone. I wonder this morning if you have done that. Have you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Kids, look up at Pastor Dave for a moment. You don't get to go to heaven because you come to this church. You don't get to go to heaven because mom and dad are members of this church. You get to go to heaven because of what Jesus has done for you on the cross. And you have put your faith and trust in Him and in Him alone. I wonder this morning if you have done that. Do you know that promise? Not just to be true for others, but do you know that promise to be true for you? wonder this morning if you are going through hardships and afflictions in this journey in life. Have you met with unexpected difficulty? And you need to be reminded this morning that this world is but an inn where you stay a night or two, and that you have a better home, a citizenship in heaven, a a, uh, inheritance waiting for you. And that one day the Lord Jesus Christ, like a groom, comes to retrieve His bride, He will return again. and He will gather His church that His church might spend eternity with Him in heaven. That's a precious promise for troubled hearts, isn't it? It's a promise that we need to preach to our hearts when they're troubled. What's the second promise for troubled hearts in this passage? Number two, I want you to look with me. When you're troubled by weak faith, preach to to your heart the promise of sufficient revelation. I'll be honest with you, I couldn't think of better words to describe this. Try to think of a more clever way to describe this to you. Sufficient revelation. Pastor, what on earth are you talking about? Let me explain. What do I mean by sufficient revelation? I want you to see here the way that Jesus identifies Himself and speaks of Himself in the interaction between Jesus and Philip. And what Jesus is saying here is that He and He alone reveals the Father and no other revelation is needed outside of Him. He's enough. He is sufficient. And when your faith is weak, when you feel like you need something more, Jesus will always be enough for you and for me. He and He alone is sufficient revelation for us. Let's look at this together. The exchange continues. Jesus says in verse 7, If you had known Me... You would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So, notice what Jesus is saying is that he's saying what? In his person, Jesus, Jesus himself, he reveals the Father. He is the revelation. And so, in order to know the Father, you must know Jesus. And so, Philip, in verse 8, look at his question of Jesus. Philip said to him, Lord, Show us the Father and it is enough for us. What's Philip asking for here in this passage? Philip is probably asking for a theophany. What's a theophany? It is an extraordinary, miraculous display of God's glory. Think Mount Sinai. Think Moses on Mount Sinai and the the cloud and the smoke descending upon Mount Sinai and the voice of God declaring His law, shaking the earth and, and causing an earthquake and causing the mountain to shake and God's people running in fear because the holiness and the awesomeness and the glory of God has descended upon the mountain. A glory revealed so great and so awesome that when Moses came down from the mountain, his face radiated from beholding the presence of God. That's a theophany. And what Philip is probably asking for here in verse 8 is something like that. Jesus, you've given us these promises. You've told us not to be troubled. So give us a theophany to prove it. What's Jesus telling? Verse 9. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know Me, Philip? What's He saying? He's saying, Philip, you don't need a theophany. You don't need a miraculous display of God's glory to prove to you who I am because when you behold Me, Philip, you behold the glory of God. Jesus is in Himself the final and full and sufficient display of the glory of God. Jesus tells him in verse 9, Whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? You don't even have to ask that, Philip. Philip. When you see me, you see the glory of the Father. You think about the prologue of John's Gospel, chapter 1, that Jesus, he came, that he's the eternal God who took on flesh and he tabernacled among his people in God in the flesh, in his person, God coming down, condescending down to us. That's what Jesus did. And what does John say? We beheld Him. The glory as of the only God, full of what? Grace and truth. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying that He is a sufficient revelation to answer every doubt. So He begins to unpack this a little bit more in verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in Me? In His person, what Jesus is saying. In His person, in His humanity, fully God and fully man, the Father is revealed. So to behold Christ is to behold the Father. God in the flesh is what Jesus is saying. Not only that, but in His words. Look at verse 10. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me, Does His works. So what Jesus is saying is not only in His person, but also in everything that He's been saying to them. His words did not come of His own authority, but He came and spoke as the Father directed Him. So, beholding Christ, hearing from Christ, and lastly, verses 10 and 11, being a witness to the works of Jesus. Do you see that there? Verse 11 Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else, believe on account of the works themselves. It's interesting to me, we've talked so much and studied so much about what Jesus does as evidence that He's the Messiah throughout the Gospel of John. And there are seven what in the Gospel of John? They begin with the turning of the water into wine and conclude with raising Lazarus from the dead. John doesn't call them works. What does he call them? Signs. Signs. That's right. He calls them signs. They're like evidence in a trial where Jesus is proven to be the Messiah. And at the conclusion of his Gospel, John calls upon the faith of those who are reading his Gospel based on the evidence of the signs. Isn't it interesting here that Jesus does not use the word signs, but uses the word what? Works. It's not signs in Greek. The word is works. Why does Jesus say that? Well, all of Jesus' signs were part of His works, but not all of Jesus' works were signs in the technical sense. That makes sense? John gives us seven signs that Jesus is the Messiah. He's collected these signs and He's he's giving theological significance to them and how Jesus fulfills all the promises of the Old Testament. How Jesus is the place of worship and, and how He reveals the Father through these signs. But that's not the only evidence that Jesus gave. Everything that Jesus did, every place that He went, Every moment, every second of Jesus' time on earth, every work Jesus is saying, revealed the Father to His disciples. Have you ever craved extra revelation from God? Have you ever gone through a a season in your life when you thought, Lord, it sure would be nice if you could give me a sign. We crave for that, don't we? When we go through hardship and difficulty. We might be praying about a difficult decision, and so I hear people say, sometimes they'll say things like, we put out a fleece before the Lord. If God does X, then we will do Y. I've heard about people through going through times of sickness in their family when death is imminent. They are grasping for a sign in nature that God is with them. Maybe a a rainbow in heaven, in the sky, or I've even heard someone describe an animal that came to visit during the last days of a person's life. And they, they viewed that as a sign from God that everything was going to be okay. Can I tell you this morning, you and I don't need any extra signs. The Lord Jesus Christ in Himself and all that He has done, He is a full and sufficient revelation for us. We think that these theophanies, if we could command one from God, would instill great faith in us. It would, just, it, it would answer all my objections and then my faith would be unshakable. Notice what Jesus says to Philip here. He reprimands him, doesn't he? In verse 9. Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Philip had been so close with Jesus three years. He'd, he had seen Jesus, touched Jesus, heard Jesus, listened to Jesus, seen Jesus, saw His signs, heard His teachings, and he still lacked faith. Psalm 78 describes the great work of God, including the Theophanies. And the psalmist concludes, in spite of all this, they, being the Israelites, still sinned. Despite His wonders, they did not believe. They saw the signs of God in Egypt. They saw the parting of the Red Sea. They saw the Theophany at Mount Sinai. And they still didn't believe the Lord. Nehemiah spoke to this in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 17, when he is recounting the sinfulness of God's people. He says, They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. We think an extraordinary sign a theophany would answer all of our doubts, and can I tell you, dear Christian, it won't. Just like the hymn says, How firm a foundation ye saints of the Lord is laid for your faith in God's excellent Word. You want a revelation from God? Take up your Bible and read. You want to know what God is calling you to do? Who to marry? Where to go? Take up wisdom from God and trust Him in the decision that you're going to make. and trust your plans to Him. You want to know who God is? Don't look to nature. Don't look for some extraordinary sign. Look to the ordinary means God has provided for us in the reading and preaching of His Holy Word. What more can be said to you, God hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? The promise for us when our faith is weak is that there's a f- sufficient revelation for us in the person and work of Christ and God has given it to us in His Word. And we have to preach that to ourselves when our faith is weak. Third promise in this passage. Come back next week and I'll tell you about it. The greater works. The promise of greater works. How's that for a cliffhanger? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the promises that comfort our afflicted hearts. And we pray, Lord, that You would remind us of Your promises. We know the promise of heaven. And we know that Christ is sufficient. And yet, we still struggle in doubt. We ask You, Lord, to encourage our faith by Your precious promises. May they be medicine to our soul in time of affliction. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.